Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. I've been waiting a long time to get this podcast back on the road and I couldn't be more thrilled uh, to relaunch with uh, my guest this week. Andy Ellis is the Chief Security Officer at Akamai Technologies. Andy has spent the last 20 years there, so he is an Akamai lifer and uh, Chief Security Officer, CISO lifer. One of my favorite thinkers in security. Andy, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining. Ryan, I really appreciate it and thank you for having me. You just wrote an article on on uh, your push to find gender balance within your security organization at Akamai. Give me a sense of what your security organization looks like, size, the, the priorities. Sure. So my team is about 75 or 80 people. We do security governance, advice and consulting, uh, and some enforcement across the whole business. So generally operational security roles, we embed inside operations teams. So my team isn't doing firewall administration or traditional SOC tasks. Instead, we're doing architectural support when people are building products, consulting with them on better ways to do that for the compliance activities. We govern a lot of those. So we don't necessarily administer the controls, but we administer the audit activities and deal with our auditors. We do uh, threat research. So the state of the internet security report is uh, published by my team. So we're doing the research, we're doing the marketing of that. So sort of a, a wide variety sort of catch all of the security tasks that don't land elsewhere. And then I also, you know, I have a board reporting responsibility. So I'm the first item on the audit your, committee's agenda. Your team agenda is distributed and global, right? First item. Yes, we are. So about uh, 60% of the team is located in Cambridge. Uh, we've got a center in Krakow that I think has another dozen staff or so. A handful of people are in our Fort Lauderdale office, and then everybody else is working in a distributed fashion, whether they're in uh, Seattle, I should say Bellevue, where the person actually is, Chicago, Australia. I got folks all over the globe. You made a concerted effort to address diversity on your team. Uh, you say in an industry where there's 10 to 15% of staff are women, your InfoSec team at Akamai is 40% plus women. Yep. Can we talk a little bit about that journey? Let's go to the start. Why was this such a priority for you? When you started, how many women were on your staff at the time uh, as it related to uh, industry comp? Oh, so if I went all the way back. Uh, how long did this take? So, you know, this has been a journey for probably right. at least a decade, if not more. When we look at it, you know, there have been concerted efforts. You know, I'd say the last, you know, three to four years, we did some really concerted efforts around our hiring and our pipeline. But you should recognize if, some, if somebody wants to tackle this challenge, you do have to tackle it holistically. You know, there's a lot of people who just try to focus on pipelines and say, oh, we just need to recruit more women or minorities, but they're not building an inclusive culture on the back end. And that inclusive culture is really necessary to help retain staff, not just women and minorities, but everyone. We have a fantastic retention rate in our organization, so we don't tend to be turning over people as quickly, and which also correlates. So let me start though with no, the I pipeline. I agree. This is why I wanted. This is why I wanted us to take a step back and get the listeners to understand that uh, achieving diversity in your team is not something you can click a button and throw money at. It's it's a, it's a Absolutely holistic not. project that takes time. That's why I wanted to you to go back and give me a sense of from the beginning the legwork and groundwork that had to be done to lay the foundation for getting to 40 plus percent. Yeah. So I think the, the legwork's been probably a decade if I looked at it sort of, you know, strategically. And there are places where, you know, we, when we weren't paying attention to something, we backslid. You know, we, we looked at how we were doing hiring probably four years ago, and we were really disappointed. And, you know, sometimes you just have this moment 
where somebody says something and it opens your eyes. And in that case, we were hiring for a position and the hiring manager said, you know, looking at the names on these resumes, I think the 20 that I've gotten are all white guys, right? Because they were all, you know, Anglo names and male. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean they were all actually white guys, but it was this eye opener. It says, why would we put out this job, 20, 20 things and we didn't get a single woman? and probably not a single minority, what are we doing wrong? And you seize those moments and you say, hey, what can I do differently? So when we think about just the pipeline again, we'll come back and I want to talk about the inclusive culture because I actually think that's yes, more yes, important. Yes. That's but more important, but I think, I think the pipeline thing and the way you work with your hiring managers and the way you look outside of security and related fields for folks who are into that kind of care, nursing, storytelling, journalists, and so on. I want to get into that as well. Uh, but this pipeline management also is very, very crucial part of it. Yeah, because uh, you know the first step is making people believe it's a problem. And I've seen way too many efforts fail because people didn't see a problem, whether the problem existed or not. But if the people who are... At the end of the day, you're going to rely on to solve the problem. Don't think there's a problem. They're not going to invest in it. That's so a political. That's a political kind of uh, force of personality thing for uh, a leader like you in an organization, though, right? To just yeah, like, like it's really easy for me to say this is important. You will go solve it this way. But instead, I said, look, this is important, and I believe so. But I would like you to all to collect data. So we partnered with our talent acquisition folks, and we said, look, we want to actually rather than look at aggregate statistics around hiring in the pipeline, which is normally what they prefer to do, right? They don't want to look at each individual pipeline. They want to say, hey, for this organization, this was the demographic breakdown of your candidates, and here's what you hired. Right. So really in cybersecurity, you had that. In security, you had that aha moment. Yeah. And we looked at it and said, let's look at each individual rec. I want to see the demographics of every candidate that hired, every candidate that applied, everybody that got an interview. And I want you to look at what were your conversion rates? You know, if you had 20% women at the candidate level, you know, I'd expect 20% to get a phone screen, give or take a few. And I'll recognize, like, I'm not asking for it to be exactly 20%. I'm not trying to enforce compliance. I just want every manager to look at that data. And what was eye-opening and telling was we looked at the data. Uh, we had one weird outlier. I'm going to come back to that outlier in a minute. But basically what it said is, you know, we were hiring at exactly the same rate that candidates came in. That was it. Okay. That if you know, 20% of the candidates were female, then we were hiring 20% female. We weren't discriminating in the hiring process. Uh, you know, there was one outlier, a couple outliers. You know, one was around. Uh, you know, it turns out that if you don't get a lot of women applying, there's a really good chance that the women that do apply are superstars. And therefore, they're probably going to turn down your offers at a higher rate. That was sort of a surprising thing. So there were a couple places. And it's, it's anecdotes. Like it's based on two or three people that were like, wow, here was this is the perfect person. They had a job offer for twice what we were willing to pay from you know one of the big giants that loves overpaying for people because right. they were one of the best in the industry. Let uh, me ask this. Is there a component of how your job descriptions are written and marketed and advertised? Absolutely. That, that, so we experimented with directly everything. to how many women and, and underrepresented folks. Okay, so we'll get into that as well. Yeah. So, so, but first we had to get people bought in that there was a problem. So now they're bought in because they've looked at the data and they're like, great, this isn't me discriminating actively. Because that's everybody's first worry is, you know, you assume when you say that you're not hiring at a reasonable rate, that there's active discrimination. So the first thing we did was look for that and said, no, there's not active discrimination. This is worse. Active discrimination I could deal with much more easily. Like if it's intentional, you fire the person. If it's not, you give them corrective education. 
Great. So we have passive discrimination and it's clearly in getting people to apply. So one thing we did was looked at how do you minimize the number of requirements that you put on a job? And here's an interesting challenge is because of Department of Labor guidance that gets you know filtered through labor lawyers and comes to talent acquisition teams, a recruiter really wants to have a lot of requirements on a job. Like to them, the ideal job only is a list of requirements. Right. If you post a job description that has 20 requirements that they can go look on resumes for those 20 and hand you a candidate that matches, like that is nirvana. Interesting. So they have they have a different motivation to fill those. Right. Because uh, they right. want to be able to provide the most value and be the best filter. If you give them a requirement that says, look, I just want good people. How do you find good people out of resumes? They're going to make right. you do a lot more work. They're going to send you more candidates. It's not a great dynamic for them. and But what we know is that the more requirements you put on a job, even if they're only notional, like, oh, you should have a CISSP, but you don't have to. But the recruiters will certainly prioritize some the person with a CISSP. Okay. Well, we have some good evidence that says women and minorities are less likely to apply for jobs that have more requirements. Whereas, you know, white men are willing to take that risk and say, look, you know, you've you've got a job with 10 requirements. I meet five of them. I'm pretty sure nobody meets all 10. I'll apply. You know, there's also an argument that says, well, the, you know, the recruiter might not, the candidate might not want to work for a company that thinks you can have an entry-level position with 10 requirements. You know, that one, I don't know how much of that is more of a sour grapes versus that's the reality, but we should recognize that there is a mindset. You are advertising. You know, job description is an advertisement for your organization. You want somebody to buy to say, I want to be in a relationship and work for you. Your job description is your marketing. And I think many people don't look at it that way. So you, we took a uh, look at it. The, we looked at the wording. Do you have degree requirements? Because I know there's some big companies moving away from that as well. So the challenge is that if you have staff who are on H-1B visas, those often require degrees to be attached to their job. So you can't necessarily take off the job, the degree requirement entirely. Um, but there are ways you can say, you know, we want four years or comparable experience. You know, there are some ways around it. Recruiters really aren't comfortable with that. It's an ongoing conversation. You know, I'm I'm aware of at least one company that has basically created parallel career paths for people with degrees and without degrees, so that they're interesting. Folks who are on an H-1B can be in the degree path, and the people who aren't don't need to be on the degree path. But it's nearly the same job. But look, if you don't have a degree, we, we're going to expect more work experience out of you with demonstrated competence in this role. So we're not we're not there yet, but it is a thing that we discuss and we talk about of, of how do we sort of get around that hurdle? Because I think we still haven't reached the whole candidate pool. We're, we're working towards it. Do you recommend your peers be flexible in that area around this degree requirements thing? Because it's a gatekeeper. It's, it it, it really absolutely is. is a gatekeeper. I think that the way that everybody should look at this, uh, and I think you're, you're aiming towards a point that's a really you know, cogent one, which is this normal way that we do hiring with very rigid formal job descriptions, with long lists of requirements, including degrees, reduces our candidate pool, right? And, and it generally includes, reduces it to middle, upper class white men. And that includes like even like subtle language things, right? Language things right. that sometimes you might not even be aware of. Do you recommend like 
getting some expert diversity experts to really filter your language and really Absolutely. look for those coded that. little coded things. Yeah. yeah, there's look, there are apps that'll do this for you. There's a gender decoder and they're not perfect. Just to be clear, like you run through one and it will give you some advice, some of which is terrible advice, but it's really about opening your eye to say, oh, you know, I hadn't really realized how much certain language applies to certain people. And you experiment and say, what works for you? What is the dynamic for your organization? Because ultimately, all you're trying to do is stop advertising to a narrow set of candidates and advertise to a greater set and have them be excited and want to come and work for you. That's it. That's the whole purpose of the job description. But isn't it fascinating how those very subtle language, that altering subtle language things to look for those very specific things makes such a significant difference? And the, and the fact that we don't pay attention to it or we're just unmindful of it is so counterproductive, you know, that I'm happy yeah. you're sharing this. Uh, because everybody everybody lives in a different world, right? And some of that has correlation with gender. Some of it doesn't. But you know, there's a, imagine I'm trying to hire one person and they're going to be my entire security team, right? Now, if that's the case, then I want somebody who is a polymath that can do anything, is self-motivated, uh, can deal with isolation, is hard charging, you know, can forge relationships as needed. But realistically, that's a, that's a difficult job. I've done that job. That was basically my first job at Akamai. And there's a, there is a type of person that you're going to aim for. But I have a team of 80 people. I, that's not the people I'm looking for. I, I want people who can work as part of a team that want to be part of that organization, that want to be helpful to our partners, because the principal thing we actually do is build relationships. It's not a nice to have anymore. That's actually the job more than anything else. You know, I don't need people who are security experts in every domain of security. I need people who have expertise in one domain, and maybe we'll develop them because we'll bring in entry-level staff, or what I call insertion-level staff. That's a, another point we'll get to in a moment. So the job description is not the same from that one-person team to that 80-person team, even for what might look like the same title. Interesting. Is Was you there know, a major adjustment look- that you had to make? Was there a major mm-hmm. adjustment you had to make on the interview process as well? Uh, uh, in terms of like, you know, challenges and just the interview, the, the, the blocking and tackling of the interview process. Was that something that you adjusted and played with as well? So there, that's a place where we did less than I did. I had the hiring managers did a lot more there. You know, one of the one of the things that we do is you try to make sure that there's always a woman on an interview panel. Now, now that's easy. Forty two percent women, much easier to make sure you're doing that than when you're twenty percent. But it serves actually three different purposes. So one purpose is it's a signal to other women who will hire in that oh, I'm not coming into an organization that's just full of men. Right? They want to see representation. They can see themselves in the team. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a really important one. There's another one, which is it's normalizing for all of the candidates to say, yes, you'll, this is, is real is, uh, is who we are, but we also did a lot of, do a lot of pair interviews. One of the things that we've found helpful is to have people really watch the dynamics when you have a male and a female interviewer. We've had candidates that refuse to address the female interviewer. That they'd ask and a you're question. talking about having observers there? No, no. We don't, but when you have two people do it, they can do the observation themselves, right? Uh-huh. 
if a if a woman interviewer comes back and says, "Look, every time I asked a question, he turned and answered to my my partner. He wouldn't look me in the eye." Then you know that's not a culture fit for you. you no, know, it's probably not going to be a good fit. That's not a person you want to have. Um, I'm very careful about the culture fit because it can mean so many things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's such a it's such a loaded term, right? The the way I look at it is, are they a fit for where I want the culture to be? Because everybody changes the culture. I don't want people who will just come in and fit who we are today. I want people who will fit who we want to be and help us get there. Because we're making improvements every day. So I don't want the people who will fit yesterday. I want the people who are going to fit tomorrow. But often when people say culture fit, it's the people who used to fit that will make life easy for me. I want to go back and make sure we don't forget something. You mentioned very briefly earlier uh, that I, did I hear you correctly that you don't even use the term entry level uh, or you're even playing with that as well? Uh, so there are entry level jobs. We do have those, you know, people who fresh out of college mostly. Uh, but a number of our jobs where I like to call insertion level jobs. Insertion level is what I heard. What are, which what are is, those? It's a job that it is somebody's first job in security but it's not their first job and they bring skills with them. Ah, I hire librarians and journalists. I expect a level of professionalism and they're bringing skills. And those aren't the only things that I hire, but when I'm hiring somebody to work on writing the state of the internet report, I could take a researcher who knows security and really try to beat my head, teaching them to master the English language. Or I can take a reporter who is deftly skilled with the English language and who might know a little bit of research or maybe doesn't know anything at all about research, but we can teach them enough of research to know the specific language, but they're bringing with it a base of other language. So we have two former journalists who work in the team. I have former lawyers who work in the team because when I have, we have to talk to customers all the time. They come in and they say, why should I trust you? And sometimes they do that by sending you contract language. And sometimes it's an open quest conversation. But the lead of the team that responds to them is a former lawyer. Like he didn't want to just do contract work. He enjoys getting to have conversations with customers. But it's really important in that job that you understand that certain words have very strict legal meanings. Um, you know, my favorite right, you is don't best know how much. You don't know how much this sounds like music to my ear, right? As an ex-journalist who went on the inside and built programs to do this, it's 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 amazing to me that more companies have not seen the value of the executive journalist or just a tech journalist in general, the storyteller yeah. who who has already commanded the ability to tell stories and communicate very clearly and concisely. And I'm now seeing it bubble up to the top. I was at RSA last week, uh, hanging out with CISOs. And one of the biggest things on their uh, mind is what you mentioned earlier. It's like, how am I communicating security and the business of security to my board of directors, to my audit committees in clear, concise way when I barely have 15 minutes and 10% of their attention, right? How am I communicating that strongly? Right. And the value and the, of journalists and storytellers in your organization becomes incredibly important. It really does. And one of the challenges that people often have, um, and you know, I'll toot my own horn here a little bit. I think I'm really skilled with the English language. Um, is people would look at me and say, well, we expect all security professionals to be like small versions of Andy. And I'm like, well, if anybody who's a small version of me probably doesn't now want to start 
inside a large organization, they're going to go to a startup. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Uh, and I, I do have people who aren't journalists who are great with the English language, but not everybody is. And the larger your organization grows, the more you can specialize. The and you, you'd be surprised body, that we're, sorry, you'd be surprised that where those skills come in handy, even if you're a pen tester or a red team or like yeah. half of your life is writing reports. Half of a life, half of your time is spent, you know, putting together findings and communicating things. And the fact that more organizations aren't doing this is just just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, it is. And so I challenge people to look at any job and say, what is the job not in security that looks closest to this? Because and you mentioned you librarian and journalists, job, but can we dig a little more into what some additional places that you think might offer sure. some? Uh, we hire, because we do a lot of work in the safety field. And complex system safety is a discipline that you'll find in mechanical engineering and chemical engineering and water safety. And I have people from all of those disciplines who've moved over into our organization to work on safety. Great. I can teach you security professional security principles that you can now apply inside the framework of doing complex systems analysis. Interesting. Interesting. I heard a mention of nurses and folks that are into uh, healthcare and uh, safety systems. You mentioned uh, some of it as well. Uh, some other organizations are starting to look into yeah, other I've, disciplines. That I've lend often itself. joked that the people who best understand security is uh, preschool teachers preschool because they know exactly teachers. what they're trying to protect. <laughs> Preschool teachers who are into jujitsu would be a perfect profile because that's it could the... be amazing. So <laughs> I think there's another place that is undertapped. And what's fascinating is when we talk about all these disciplines, look, journalism doesn't really have the gender imbalance that security has. So if I'm trying to hire a technical writer, well, if I try to hire a security professional, I'm come, going after a pool that is 15% women. If I'm going after a journalist, I don't know what the current stats are, but it's closer to 50%. It's actually probably more heavily weighted. Interesting. And then, I boom, I just have a leg up because I went after a new population to hire. Interesting. Right? I don't have, and then I don't have to put my finger on any scales. Like I don't have to say, look, whenever you hire, um, I need you to hire women. Now, I do say to my staff, I'm like, look, if you do four hires in a row and they're all men, Look, I really then need you to explain to me that this is evidence of a normal random distribution and not evidence of something else. Right? So I am going to put that cost at that point, but we really don't have to do that very often because the reality is your managers just want to hire good people. And where we are now, because I think we do have a reputation of having an inclusive culture, you know, we get an advertising benefit. We have people who want to come work for us that say, hey, you've been on my list for a while of places to come work. And I'm like, great, that's fantastic. I wish that didn't have to be the case. I wish that this sort of inclusive culture existed everywhere, uh, not just about the hiring pipeline, but how do you keep people inside an organization? Is this something that's easy to mimic within Akamai outside of security, uh, within your peers in the organization to just kind of piggyback on what you've done in InfoSec? You know, I think some of it is and some of it is harder work. And I have a number of peers that I engage in regular conversations. In fact, our CIO, I'm going to his staff meeting uh, next week 
to talk to all of his direct reports about, hey, here's what we've done and here's what the journey looks like to, to help amplify that. You know, the, the article that we published started out as an internal blog post. You know, I just wanted to celebrate, hey, we, we finally crossed 40%. And the response inside the company was fantastic. And there's our PR folks that said, hey, we should, we should go make this an article outside as well, because maybe that'll get picked up. So, you know, Tim Whitman, who we both know, really was an instrumental in driving that. Yes, Tim is. Tim is. Uh, he's got his uh, head plugged into making sure these stories are told the right way. That's one of one of your, uh, your one of your many good hires. You know, you and I know. I have a lot of friends on your team and and in yeah. your organization. I want to end, Andy. We're up against a half hour mark, but I want to end with um, with two to our horns. What didn't work as you went through this process? What uh, you wished uh, you did better? Um, what are some uh, some of the negatives, downsides, uh, lessons learned that you can share? So there's a there's a couple there. So one is you know we really I think haven't pushed hard enough in the minority community, and I think I chose to sequence there to say hey look we can tackle one over the other, uh, and you know I think probably should have been more tightly aligned and said you know we're going to look at both of these problems at the same time. There's there is a big you view difference. that as something that has to be done differently. Yes, it does actually have to be done differently. The Why? the difference is that look, women are fifty percent of the population. Like it is really easy to say if I'm not hiring any women, I am clearly doing something wrong. When you look among minority populations, they're all different. Like you can't just say what's your minority number. My minority number is actually decent, but. You know, it's heavily weighted to specific populations. There are other populations that aren't even represented on my team. And so I can't just rely on sort of the random, you know, what's going to happen there. And, you know, small numbers can bite you. You know, if you have no African-American on your team, hiring the first one is a problem. Uh, because they'll look around, they'll be like, well, there's nobody here. Why is there nobody here? You know, the same way that women do. Uh, and if you have two, and for some reason both of them quit the same quarter, you know, you always right, question: that's the end of Did it, I right? do something, or was it really mm-hmm. just random? But now I'm back to zero, and you're starting all over again. So your diversity push uh, and, and all the conversations we are having here is just limited to gender. Uh, you you so view I'm pushing on all of them, but the the places where I've succeeded is really on gender. So I recognize there's still work to be done. Now, when you talk about an inclusive environment, building the inclusive environment is not about gender, right? Inclusion is just about reducing the energy cost that your employees pay to show up at work. Like this isn't about even their professional inclusion, but it's how do you make sure that you're not just burning their energy because they show up in a workplace where they don't feel comfortable, where they feel like they have to hide their needs because if they tell you, that they have to leave at three to pick up a kid from childcare because something happened that they're not like going to lose they're out not on an, an anomaly. Right. Right. It's not an anomaly in the organization yeah. that, that this is expected that women, ex- it's an expectation that women have to deal with these issues. Separately right. That, they, from- that, that we tend to make more women deal with it more, but it's energy cost. And you would much rather have them spend that energy being productive at work. So if you just normalize, you know, you need to leave at three, that's okay. And in fact, I leave at three, often enough and tell people I'm doing it so they can see that I really believe it, that it's not me saying, oh, it's okay if you leave at three. 
No, I'm leaving at three. You know, we have coronavirus right now and everybody's worried. And I have people who don't want to come into the workforce, you know, but they're worried because maybe they're immunocompromised and don't actually want to reveal that to people as to why they don't want to come into the office for a week. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm working from home. They said, look, the example at the top. It's okay for you to work from home. We're not forcing everybody to work from home. I'm, by the time this airs, that might change. Who knows? But I want to make it normal that it's okay to work from home. So I'm going to work from home. And yeah, does that impact my productivity a little bit? Only on days that I'm not only on the phone. Like today is fantastic. My productivity is not impacted by being at home because all I'm doing is back-to-back meetings. So I can do those all virtually. And they're, in fact, all with distributed staff. So. Fantastic. What is next for you in this diversity push? Is there is there more room to grow? Do you think you can get up to a 50 percent uh, landmark? Oh, absolutely. I think we'll hit 50 percent relatively soon, partly because our hiring rate has been at or above 50 percent now for the last couple of years. So and your pipeline just, is your pipeline completely looks different from the way you started. Let's see. Yeah. Even yeah, we uh, hired say, people and, we, and you know, I didn't even talk about like the Akamai Technical. Yeah, we have the Akamai Technical Academy we hire talk out about of, it, talk about which it. is we predominantly women and minorities. Yeah, so the Technical Academy what is, is the, just... What is that? What is that? It's a retraining program is the easiest way to think about it. Is, you know, you'll have people who want to get back into the tech community or into it in the first place. Maybe they were out of the, you know, out for a while. Yeah, they had a child. Maybe they have a degree that isn't actually the right degree. You know, they got a, a bachelor's in mechanical engineering which, no offense, but that's mostly a degree that's not going to give you a job in mechanical engineering that you really want, but you hear there's hot jobs over in tech. So we retrain people. We focus on underrepresented groups, women, minorities, veterans, and they run through a six-month paid program where we're teaching them the fundamentals of Akamai. And now those classes are focused on operations or QA generally, because those are the folks we're going to those have good entry level or insertion level jobs. And what I'd commit to is I just hire one person out of every one of those cohorts. I don't have a specific person in mind. What we do is we talk to the instructors and we say, look, who was the biggest troublemaker that you really liked them? Like they weren't causing trouble for the sake of it, but they always asked the question that was right at the edge. Like you're trying to work yeah, on this basic the concept, you gloss things over. And they said, but what about this case? I don't understand. Like I want that person. And so... We've had a lot of success hiring out of that program. So that brings us some staff. We have our own internship program. You know, it's part of Akamai's overall one. But I hire usually, you know, two to four interns a year that they come in and they, you know, they tend to stick around. You know, not all of them do. Some of them, you know, stay here for two or three years and then have gone elsewhere. But many of them, we provide them with a career path upwards where they can see, oh, I came in as an intern, and then I'm a security researcher, and then I get to security researcher too, but there's a path for me to be an architect, or if I want to go be a software developer, you know, I can go do that, or I want to be a data scientist. You know, one of our, you know, hot recent interns is a data scientist, and everybody loves her work. It's fantastic to see, but, you know, we'll just do that because those are different avenues and pipelines to bring people in, rather than just relying on throw a job description and see who shows up. Right. And you, you're, you're able to pull significant uh, talent out of that Akamai program. We've gotten some great talent and you know, every cohort, if I have a team there, 
you know, we, we, I don't have any of staff in our Costa Rica office. So when they do the, the technical academy, I don't hire out of that one because I'm not going to put a junior staff where I don't have any managers to support them. Fantastic. Andy, thank you so much for your time. You have to come back again because there's so much things. I have so much notes here that I haven't touched on. And I also want to talk to you about like being a CISO beyond just the hiring things. So I will be, uh, I'll be pinging you to come back on the podcast so we can continue shooting the breeze. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much, my friend. Thanks for having me, Ryan.